You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. A microphone is a handy tool for getting back at people, but an entire recording studio is even better. Popular music is littered with songs getting back at an ex-lover, from Waylon Jennings to Taylor Swift. But a fair number of the tracks you know by heart are actually clapbacks to the people in the mixing booth or the record label offices. And when I say, know by heart, I mean by Anne and Nancy Wilson of heart, rock and roll's sisters of awesomeness. Their hit, Barracuda, which somehow failed to crack the Billboard Top 10 when it was released in 1977, isn't about the Plymouth Fastback muscle car or even the sleek and toothy underwater killing machines. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. With arguably one of the greatest opening riffs in classic rock, Barracuda was written by Anne and Nancy Wilson together with guitarist Roger Fisher and drummer Michael DeRossier. It was written at a time when there was a great deal of friction between the band and their label. The song appears on the album Little Queen, their first album with CBS Portrait Records. They had left their old label, Mushroom Records, after a contract dispute, and Mushroom was none too happy, in that Hart was supposed to give them a second album. Mushroom not only sued the band for breach of contract, and to block the release of the CBS album, but released the album Magazine an album made up of songs that Hart had recorded but didn't want released, as well as some live recordings to fluff it out to album length. The dispute dragged on and eventually the court decided that Hart was free to sign with a new label, but that Mushroom was indeed owed a second album. So Hart went back to the studio to re-record, remix, edit and resequence the magazine recordings in a marathon session over four days. The situation was so contentious that a court-ordered guard actually stood nearby to make sure the master tapes weren't erased. Hart came out on top in the end, as not only did Little Queen outsell magazine hands down, but the debacle gave the band the distinction of having three albums on the charts at the same time. The court case wasn't the only reason the Wilsons and company were mad at Mushroom Records. After the first album became a million seller, Mushroom took out a full-page ad in Rolling Stone magazine touting the band's success, using the headline, Million to One Shot Sells a Million. The ad was made to look like the front page of a tabloid newspaper and included a photo from the Dreamboat Annie album cover shoot. The caption read, Hart's Wilson sisters confess, it was only our first time implying that the sisters had had a lesbian love affair. Shortly after this ad appeared, a Detroit radio promoter asked Ann Wilson where her lover was. She assumed he meant her then-boyfriend band manager Michael Fisher. When the reporter clarified he was referring to her sister Nancy, 
Anne was outraged and retreated to her hotel room to write. When she relayed the incident to Nancy, she too was understandably outraged and joined Anne, contributing a melody and bridge. Nancy put suitably angry music to the words to complete the song, comparing the sleazy side of music to a dangerous eel-like fish. The song became an enduring classic, and Barracuda remains one of the band's signature songs. Barracuda was attached to an incident of severe irritation for the Wilson sisters et al. again in 2008. During that year's presidential campaign, the song was used as the unofficial theme song for Republican vice presidential nominee Sarah Palin. The Alaska governor had apparently earned the nickname Sarah Barracuda as a high school basketball player. The day after it was played at the 2008 National Republican Convention, Anne and Nancy Wilson issued a statement that read, The Republican campaign did not ask for permission to use the song, nor would they have been granted that permission. We have asked the Republican campaign publicly not to use our music. We hope our wishes will be honored. Their wishes were not honored. As the Republican campaign pointed out, they had obtained the proper performance rights to the song from the record label and were under no obligation to get any further permission to use it. The bar would have been set higher if they had wanted to use it for commercial or video purposes. With no legal recourse, the Wilson sisters retaliated in the media, telling Entertainment Weekly, Sarah Palin's views and values in no way represent us as American women. We ask that our song Barracuda no longer be used to promote her image. The song Barracuda was written in the late 70s as a scathing rant against the soulless corporate nature of the music business, particularly for women. While Hart did not and would not authorize the use of their song at the RNC, there's irony in Republican strategists' choice to use it there. The song's co-writer, Roger Fisher, was also anti-Palin, but he saw the situation differently, telling Reuters he was thrilled that the song was being used as it was a win-win situation. He explained that while Hart gets publicity and royalties, the Republicans benefit from the ingenious placement of a kick-ass song. He added that he would use some of the proceeds in a donation to the Obama campaign, and thus, quote, the Republicans are now supporting Obama. See kids, there's always a silver lining if we look for it. The inimitable late great Freddie Mercury of Queen penned another musical hate letter though this one is best known to fans who owned the album A Night at the Opera, which this reporter still has on vinyl, as the song Death on Two Legs was never released as a single. This track was dedicated to Norman Sheffield, Queen's former manager and a co-owner of Trident Studios. Mercury himself described the lyrics as so vindictive that Brian May, guitarist and backup vocals, felt bad singing it. It opens with the line, You suck my blood like a leech, you break the law and you breach, and had lyrics like, Was that fin on your back part of the deal, shark? The surviving band members noted the unhappy atmosphere in the documentary The Days of Our Lives, explaining that they had felt they were being done wrong by the label as they kept producing hit singles without seeing much money. By way of example, at one point, Roger Taylor was told he couldn't hit the drums too hard because they couldn't afford new drumsticks. But as Taylor noted, you see the management running around in stretch limos and think, hang on, there's something not right here. 
The band's split from Trident Studios was unsurprisingly acrimonious, and the song acted as something of a final word from the band, the aural equivalent of the British two-fingered salute. As it appears on the album, the song has dedicated to dot 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 after the title. Even though the song didn't use his name or any overtly identifying characteristics, Sheffield tried to sue for defamation of character. This was a bit of a miscalculation on his part, as by doing so, he effectively admitted there was cause for them to dedicate this song to him. The parties eventually reached an out-of-court settlement. I googled for nearly an hour and I couldn't find any specifics outside of the fact that Queen was the one doing the paying. So if anyone has any additional information about that case, please hop over to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash yourbrainonfacts, and post about it. I would love to learn more. In his autobiography published in 2013, Life on Two Legs set the record straight, Sheffield denied that he had mistreated the band in his capacity as manager and cited the original 1972 management contracts between himself and Queen, which he included in the book, in his defense. He named his autobiography after the song. The lady doth protest too much, methinks. The music industry is a harsh mistress for many. Record executives not only tell you how to live in the present day, they make up a punchier past for you, altering your history to help them sell records. And once you're no longer laying golden eggs for them, your goose is cooked. At least that's how the members of Pink Floyd felt. The album titles Wish You Were Here and song title Welcome to the Machine may have been statements, but their recording actually asked a question, what is the true cost of fame? The story of the album is in no small part also the story of founding member Sid Barrett. Barrett was the band's original lead guitar and vocalist, but in the late 1960s he dove headlong into heavy LSD use. His behavior became erratic and unpredictable, leading people to speculate now that he may have been self-medicating schizophrenia. As his hold on reality became increasingly tenuous, the band finally made the painful decision to replace him bringing on David Gilmore. Barrett's deterioration was the impetus behind one of the band's most enduring hits, Shine On, You Crazy Diamond. If the title is written on three lines, you'll see the acronym, SID, S-Y-D. Barrett visited the band once in the studio, virtually unrecognizable to his former bandmates. It was the last time any of them would see him alive. Shine On bookends the album, dominated by a four-note guitar theme that Roger Waters, the guitarist who would fill the void as singer, thought sounded like Barrett's lingering ghost. Shine On contains the lyric, You were caught in the crossfire of childhood and stardom. They blamed the music industry for Barrett's decline. This can be seen again in the song Have a Cigar, which is summed up best by the line, Oh, by the way, which one's pink? The lyrics are one half of a conversation between a record exec and the musicians he's trying to woo with fame and fortune, without bothering to know the first thing about them. The same sentiment makes up Welcome to the Machine. It tells the story of a record exec talking to a musician without caring in the slightest about that person, creating a marketable backstory, something they can sell to the fans. 
The exec even writes the creative's future. What did you dream? It's all right. We told you what to dream. The song is full of ominous tones and mechanical sounds, reflecting the cold, inhuman nature of the industry. Pink Floyd carried this message through to the album cover art. The front cover shows two men shaking hands in a business deal with one of them on fire, literally being burned in the deal. On the back, a faceless businessman in a barren desert holds a master pressing. If you're going to pause the podcast to go back and give Welcome to the Machine a listen, I highly recommend the cover by the band Pinwheel. Do not listen to the Queensryche version. Just don't. The Shadows Fall version is good, too. It's pretty faithful, with some extra harmonies. At the same time Pink Floyd was dealing with their label, we saw the launch of Virgin Records, which got a huge initial boost from artist Mike Oldfield and his hit Tubular Bells. Oldfield was only 19 years old when he wrote the epic rock symphony, which, at 49 minutes, had to be split on two sides of a record. After the demo he recorded in his London flat somehow found its way into the hands of billionaire-to-be Richard Branson, Branson signed Oldfield to a recording contract and sent him to re-record a new version of the album in their newly established Manor Recording Studio, where Oldfield played nearly every instrument himself as he had on the demo. The finished product would become the first release on Virgin Records and a critical and commercial success, reaching number one on the UK album charts, and it remained on the charts for a record-shattering 280 weeks. Its fame was further cemented by director William Friedkin, who used the album's spooky opening piano theme for the soundtrack of his 1973 horror classic, The Exorcist. The success of Virgin Records set Branson up to create a business empire, including Virgin Mobile Phones and Virgin Atlantic Airlines. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. With Wired Science, you can geek out all you want. It's a podcast for anyone obsessed with math, science, space, biology, or technology. And it provides in-depth coverage on current news and discoveries. From strange diseases that turn your tongue fuzzy to tech that'll help crops grow from space. New episodes are released nearly every day, and they're typically under 10 minutes, so you can easily make them a part of your daily routine. Listen in the morning while you're getting ready or during lunch while you check NASA's astronomy picture of the day. Check out Wired Science now wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. 
Things were strained between Oldfield and Branson right from Jump Street. Branson and an engineer remixed tubular bells without Oldfield's permission. Oldfield could politely be called a recluse, but Branson knew that he needed to capitalize on the song's success by having Oldfield perform it live. Branson even gave Oldfield his own Bentley if he would just go out on stage. The Bentley, as it turned out, cost more in repairs than it would have cost Oldfield to buy one for himself. Branson also got considerably richer than Oldfield from Tubular Bells, as he was both the owner of the record label and Oldfield's manager. It took time for royalties to trickle into Oldfield, at his below-industry-standard rate of 5%, but the tax bills came promptly. Rather than our usual assumption that instantly famous also means instantly rich, Oldfield was in debt more often than not, and counseled by an accountant to move overseas. His contract with Virgin Records was grueling, requiring 13 albums from him over the span of only 17 years. Lawyers were brought in, and the pair were joined in a legal struggle that dragged on for years, only narrowly avoiding going to court. In 1990, Oldfield released his second-to-last obligatory album, Amarok. He decided to get his own, as the Brits say, in a subtle way. The album was an hour-long, continuous stream of often discordant music, essentially guaranteed to be unplayable on the radio. Buried 48 minutes in, the rhythmic cacophony is overlaid with staccato screeches. Though it would fail to grab the ear of the average person, Boy Scouts and old sailors would recognize it as Morse code. What were the words? Well, let's just say the first word was the acronym of For Unlawful Carnal Knowledge, which, side note, is not where that word comes from, and you can bet your sweet bippy I'll do an episode about that one day. The next word was OFF followed by the initials R.B. for Richard Branson. This was certainly not the sequel to Tubular Bells that the record execs were pushing for. Oldfield would eventually record that after signing with Warner Brothers. Things seem better between Oldfield and Branson now, though. They're able to share an occasional meal amicably, and Oldfield gets free flights on Virgin Atlantic, though they don't fly to his new home in the Bahamas, so he rarely gets to use them. Mike Oldfield is far from the only artist to produce a deliberately unusable album to fulfill a contract. Quality is subjective, particularly in a form of artistic expression like music, so it's impossible to bake a requirement like that into the contract. Here's a rundown, but by no means exhaustive list, of albums recorded for the sole and exclusive purpose of fulfilling a contract. There's one item of note I can only mention in passing a Rolling Stones track called Schoolboy Blues, which may require you to turn off Google Safe Search to find the lyrics. Even if you don't know the artist's name, almost everyone who's ever knowingly tuned in a classic rock station can sing along to Brown Eyed Girl. After a pretty happy couple of years with his label Bang Records in the mid-60s, Van Morrison wanted out. Luckily for him, Warner Music stepped in and bought out his deal with Bang Records. Unluckily, however, there was still one small contractual detail. Morrison was obliged to record exactly 36 songs for his old label, who would also continue to earn royalties off anything he released for the first year after leaving them. Not a patient man at the best of times, Van did the only thing he could think of. 
He recorded more than 30 songs in a single recording session on an out-of-tune guitar about subjects as diverse as ringworm, blowing your nose, some dumb guy named George, and whether he wanted to eat a Danish or a sandwich. Bang Records concluded that the songs were below the quality of Morrison's regular output, you think, and deemed the bizarre collection unfit for release. The tracks would eventually see the light of day in the mid-90s and remain some of the weirdest and often funniest music ever recorded by a mainstream artist. In early 77, Frank Zappa wanted out of his deal with Warner Brothers and recorded Lather, an eight-sided, three-hour, quadruple album of brand new material. He was told he needed to deliver four separate albums to fulfill his contract, however so he reformatted the whole thing into the four required albums. But Warner wasn't having it, and still wouldn't release the records. They not only refused to let Zappa out of his contract, but they wouldn't pay him for the work he had done. In the pre-internet age, Frank did the only thing he could. He took one of the test pressings to KROQ in Los Angeles and played the whole set on air as an exclusive. He also asked his fans to record the whole thing, thus giving them permission to bootleg it. Warner Brothers released some material from Lather in 1977, while they and Zappa were tied up in court and he wasn't recording. They eventually released the bulk of the album in 1996, three years after Zappa's death. To say that Zappa was prolific is to damn with faint praise. Lather was his 65th album. Things were also tense between Neil Young and Geffen Records, and with David Geffen personally, as he reached the end of his contract in 1986. Geffen had sued Young for $3.3 million on the ground that Young's most recent records were non-commercial and musically uncharacteristic. Basically, David Geffen had sued Neil Young for not sounding enough like Neil Young. Landing on Water sounded like Neil Young, all right albeit a rather jaded and disillusioned version of him. Several of the songs on the album were resurrected from Neil Young and Crazy Horse's failed 1984 sessions, a set of sessions where, according to longtime producer David Briggs, the musicians, quote, played like monkeys. Young settled out of court with Geffen Records, but again, I can't find any specifics. Before releasing his own unsellable but required albums, the Purple One himself, the late great artist formerly and then again known as Prince, changed his name to the famous unpronounceable gender-mixing squiggle. He also performed with the word slave written across his face, making it even more difficult for Warner Brothers to market him, in hopes of being more trouble than he was worth to them. He began churning out albums at a prodigious rate. The last album of his contract, Chaos and Disorder was a collection of dodgy leftovers and tracks otherwise unsuitable for a proper album. The first album he released with his new label, EMI, was back to his usual standards. Its title? Emancipation. Releasing a live album is a time-honored way to deliver on contractual obligations, and not always with middling results. With his band The Experience having broken up in mid-1969, Jimi Hendrix put together a new band, the eponymous Band of Gypsies, in order to make this record and get it out as quickly as possible. 
The motives were pragmatic, and the results were pretty good. Recorded over two nights at the Fillmore East in New York City, specifically New Year's Eve and New Year's Day, the album finds Hendrix at his best. The band went their separate ways a few weeks later, and barely six months after that, Hendrix would be dead. For much of the 90s, British goth-punk band The Sisters of Mercy battled viciously with their record label East-West. There was a train wreck of a co-headlining tour with Public Enemy, the snap firing of a manager, and cancelled distribution deals in the States. Trying to kill the last two albums that the sisters owed East-West, singer Andrew Eldrick sent the label work from another project of his. Without even listening to it, the label said that the new material would cover the obligation. What Eldrick sent them was some abysmal techno entitled <clears throat> SSV-NSMABAAOTWMODAACOTIATW. If that's supposed to be pronounced phonetically, good luck with that. It's rumored to stand for Screw Shareholder Value, not so much a band as another opportunity to waste money on drugs and ammunition courtesy of the idiots at Time Warner. East-West never released the album, but bootlegs abound. Marvin Gaye's album, Here My Dear, was not recorded to appease a grumpy record label. Rather, he was trying to please both the courts and an unhappy ex-wife. The legendary crooner and his missus, Anna Gordy, had become estranged. Marvin's remarkable cocaine habit and extravagant lifestyle meant he wasn't keeping up with his alimony. Therefore, a deal was struck. Half the royalties of Gay's next album would go to Anna. As you might imagine, Gay didn't really fancy making another masterpiece like What's Going On. Instead, he hoped to turn in something a bit rubbish, or, in his words, lazy. Bad. Of course, you can never predict when genius will strike. Once Gay got going, he couldn't help but make one of the most beautifully candid and emotionally raw breakup albums ever. That having been said, Gay got his original wish when the album was released, and both fans and critics gave it a collective meh. Every now and again, the double-edged sword of artistic integrity pops up. Ben Folds of the eponymous Five signed a publishing contract that he later regretted. It required him to pen a very specific number of songs a year, right down to the decimal point. The track One Down is one of a number of songs he dutifully churned out to meet the contract, and details the struggle and silliness of being party to such a legally binding document. The lyrics directly address the ridiculous situation of having to write .6 of a song, as well as the temptation to give his publishing company something a little bit terrible. With not a little irony, he sings, One down and 3.6 tomorrow, and I'm out of here. People tell me, Ben, just make up junk and turn it in. But I could never quite bring myself to write a bunch of... You can fill in the rest. As we mentioned with Jimi Hendrix, not all contract fulfillers are of poor quality. David Bowie thought his contract with RCA would expire with Lodger, the third album in what is called the Berlin Trilogy. He was counting on the double live album stage as two records. RCA, however, were having none of that and demanded another album to fulfill Bowie's obligation. The result was arguably his last great studio album, 
Scary Monsters and Super Creeps. The advanced single, Ashes to Ashes, which resurrected his popular Major Tom character from Space Oddity, went to number one in the UK and performed strongly in numerous countries. In the US, the song had a different fate, just missing the Billboard Hot 100, peaking at 101. Fashion, a direct descendant of Station to Station's golden years, followed in short order, pushing scary monsters to the top of the charts in the UK. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. The music business is often business first, and music a distant second. With stardom so close they can almost taste it, many young performers find themselves signing contracts that benefit primarily their manager or the record label. Luckily for them, they're also equipped with this tremendous platform to subtly, or not so subtly, strike back. Have you ever heard an album or song that you thought was made purely for business reasons? Pop over to our Facebook page or leave a comment on the platform you're listening to if it allows comments. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. Today's episode was brought to you by the word moist. Moist. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes.